Are we on the air? Okay. <laughs> I just like saying that. <laughs> Welcome back. Episode 10, the All the Fly Kids show. This is the Paradise Lost episode. Today, we have a woman here who um, I met last year about this time um, at a really, really awesome event that's coming up in February, actually, the Black Love Experience at the Anacostia Art Center. That's a pre- uh, 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 promo type of thing uh, for that event. Check it out. But nonetheless, um, heard her speaking on a panel that um, we shared together. And um, I don't know, somehow we just got connected and I learned that, you know, she is a force to be reckoned with in the D.C. community. You know, she's out here in these streets doing the good work for all the good people, you know, and I am very glad to have her on the show. Today, we have Miss Chioma Iwoha. Yes, look at right. you saying it right. I practiced. <laughs> <laughs> I made sure I practiced because I don't like stumble. I used to do telemarketing back in the day. So, you know, I had to get good with saying people's, people's names. names. Yeah. yeah. So, but thank you for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. And we also have an actual kid in the building because this is all the fly kids. So this is the first time we ever had a kid. We have Miss Ngozi with us today. Say hello, Ngozi. <laughs> She she's doing her artistic thing right now, so you know she'll chime in as needed. Right. <laughs> when when she sees fit, she will chime in <laughs> on the program. Um, but yeah, so let's just jump right into it. So Chioma, well, I'm gonna call you Chi Chi because that's what you told me to call you. So I'm gonna call you Chi Chi. Okay. <laughs> Chi Chi. So um, tell the people where you're from. I'm from here. I'm from Washington D.C. I grew up in the Shaw Howard neighborhood. Um, so this neighborhood is very familiar. To okay. Me. Okay. And what was DC like for you growing up? Like just how you remember it, what what is near and dear to you as a child or even as a teen? Yeah. Well, we were just talking about this and you know, this neighborhood means so much to me. When I grew up, it was nothing but black business owners like up and down the strip. Mm -hmm. Um my mom had an ice cream shop across the street on um, right there at the intersection of Georgia Avenue in Florida. My dad had a clothing store. Um, what is that? Like on 11th and U. So I'm very familiar with just like being in this neighborhood, being a part of the community. And I went to St. Augustine on 14th and V. Mm -hmm. So I would leave school and just go to my dad's shop and hang out there and talk to people on the block. Okay. Um, so yeah, like that's what I remember about DC. Just very familiar, um, very community oriented, dominated with like black business owners and people who were out here just trying to make a way for themselves and them fa and their families. Okay. Um, and Marion Bray was the uh, mayor, so yes, he was. I used to think Marion Bray was two people. <laughs> 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 when I was young, how did you think he was two people? <laughs> it was like I don't know. I thought it was like Marion and then like Barry. I thought it was like two people. I don't know why. I just <laughs> always thought it was like two people until I got a little bit older and was like, oh, like this is like somebody who is really like invested in the community and single handedly like building the black middle class. Okay, okay. And the name Chioma. What's the origin of that? It's Ebo. Ebo. God is good. Okay. She means God. Ebo, as in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is your family Nigerian? My dad's from Nigeria. Okay. Um, oh, MO State. So I had like, you know, I'm, we had like the goosey soup and the Ebo dishes in the home. Uh, and, you know, any, I, I, my mom's from the South. She's from Mobile, Alabama. My mom's from Mobile, Alabama. Okay. So um, I'm the, I'm the first like native Washingtonian. Okay. Um, me and my, my sisters and I. Okay. Okay. How many sisters? I have two younger sisters. All right. So you're the oldest. I'm the eldest. And so. They don't listen to me, though. <laughs> not the eldest can, like, run stuff. Like, I, I can't run nothing. I don't run nothing. So you, you got the torch to bear as far as the kids go. Yeah. Well, I definitely got in trouble when they got in trouble. So if they did something wrong, I was in trouble. But they never actually listened to me. <laughs> so I'm do doing my research on you because um, I think this will probably be the very first, like, full-length conversation we've ever had. One-on-one. -on -one. So... Gotta, I'm going to ask some things just so to give the people some more info about you as well as for myself to know. So mm -hmm. um, you went to the field school, correct? I work at the field school. I didn't go to the field school. Oh, okay, 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 okay. You work at the field school. So what led you to um, working there? Because um, as far as I know, it's one of the, uh, it's one of the uh, prominent non-religious private schools in the city. Yeah, um, so... 
Back, okay, so back when I was working at Empower DC, which is a grassroots um, organization, mm-hmm. I was mostly like in charge of just building relationships with people, going out in the community, hearing um, their grievances and talking to them about things that we could do about it. Okay. In the midst of that, I was also um, responsible for spearheading an Empower DC fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And it was really one of my one of my first times putting myself in a position to like raise money for a cause that I truly believed in. Okay. After working with Empower DC and um, kind of having that experience, I really wanted to continue in that trajectory. So I went and started fundraising and applying for like fundraising positions in the city and ended up at, um, Legal Aid Justice Center that provides legal services for low-income individuals in Northern Virginia. So over the course of, like, my career trajectory, I kind of just, like, fell into fundraising and development work. But it led me to the field school where I fundraised for financial aid. So the field school is an affluent school um, where youth do have to pay, you know, close to, like, what? They have to pay, like, what, $48,000 a year in order to attend the institution but they're about 20% of the student body is on financial aid. Okay. So I'm charged with fundraising so that the school is more accessible to people within the community. Okay. All right. Wow. I didn't even know like positions like that like existed like in that capacity where like, you know, you're doing fundraising work. Because I know a lot of people, you think about a private school, and you just think like this is only for, you know, people with money. You know, if uh, a city or state is providing scholarships for students who um i guess are academically um adept for for the school that you know they might do they might provide that but as far as like actual fun i never heard of this but yeah i mean all of our all the alumni gifts go directly towards financial aid okay. um and we are very intentional about making sure that the school is diverse is accessible um, and we can only do that if we fundraise money. I think fundraising oftentimes is like a taboo topic. People don't like to ask other people for money, but they don't think about the feeling that they get when they give, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I give to somebody that I true something that I truly believe in, like I want to see it grow. I want to see the end result. Um, so I'm never afraid to ask people for what I need in order to be successful and to funnel resources into the community. So I think this is the right, like, it's the right tr- path for me. And I try to connect it to the grassroots organizing work that I do. Um, I want to actually jump back a little bit and talk about your time at Lafayette College. Okay. Um, it's a liberal arts college in uh-huh. in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. Okay. What was it like going going to school up there? I used to live, I used to live in Pennsylvania. Well, I lived in Philly, you mm-hmm. know, which I know is like, what, that's like an hour and a half away from where you were. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm. I have a little uh, apprehension to small towns because I'd be like, "What do you do here?" But just go to the mall or go to the bar. Yeah, there was nothing. There was nothing <laughs> in that town. Nothing. Um. So I grew up in, like I said, Washington D.C. and I went to predominantly black um, schools my entire life. Like mm-hmm. I never had white friends. Okay. <laughs> I never went to school with white people. Okay. Um, even my high school, the high school that I came from, was Kima Public Charter School, which is an African-centered school. Right, right. They would take us to Ghana, Benin, and Togo every two years. Okay. So if you couldn't afford to go, like the school would take you. Mm-hmm. So I came from like the diverse, like the most diverse person we would have would be like Dominican. Dominican, you know, okay. <laughs> which is still African. Right, right. You know? Still a person uh, of color. Uh, yeah, you're still a person of color. You're still of African descent. Um, so I ended up, one of my teachers submitted my name to Posse, um, which is a full tuition leadership scholarship. Okay. And there were about a thousand youth who applied for it during my year, but now it's like huge. It's okay. a huge program. Um, it's very competitive. And I won. Um, uh, I, I actually was one of 30 people out of a thousand who were chosen to get a full tuition scholarship to go to a top tier institution. OK, um, it would have been we go through like this eight um, month training process in order to get more familiar with your posse mm-hmm. um, and talk about like race, class and gender and how you show up as a leader mm-hmm. um, on on campus. Mm-hmm. So. I chose Lafayette College. That was the school that I chose to attend. And it would have been the first, like, school 
that I went to with white folks. Okay. Um, it was, I think, the greatest thing about Posse is that, and the reason why it was created was um, Debbie, who is the founder of it, was talking to a student who dropped out of college, and he said that he never would have dropped out if he had his posse. So she created a program where people go to school together and they're each other's support system so that they don't drop out of school. Okay. Um, so even though uh, it was really hard getting acclimated to a predominantly white campus, I had a group of people around me who were just like really supportive and making sure that I like did what I had to do. It was very drastically different than anything I'd experienced. I became a leader on campus, had to address racial insensitivities. So I started training me f- to show up, right, yeah. in ways for my for folks in my community mm-hmm. to talk about race and class and to hold the institution um, accountable to us, our the student body. <laughs> so, yeah, Lafayette was very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, Obama just gave his last, what, final speech the uh, yesterday. Yep. And I was just thinking back on the first time he ran. And I was, what, a sophomore, I believe, in college. Okay. And I was doing, like, organizing on campus around, like, his campaign. Yeah. So we, me and my best friend, we woke up really early in the morning and we started chalking the campus with his name. Mm-hmm. Um, we get out of like our arts class, we walk up the steps and it's just like white guy from one of the fraternities on camp on campus. And mind you, there's no like black fraternities or sororities on campus, only like predominantly white ones. Um, and he's like hosing Obama's name off. Mm-hmm. And we confronted him and we were like, what are you doing? You know, you're not like you, if you want to organize around your candidate, um, then that's what you do. You do that. Mm-hmm. But don't don't erase the hard work that we've been putting into this, like, that we've been putting into his campaign. And, you know, all the fraternity members came outside, were yelling at us, like, um, they need to get rid of welfare and they were very, like, antagonistic. And even if you Google, like, my name, like, an article pops up about the incident because it turned into this really big thing in eastern Pennsylvania. So it's, it's like, eastern is small. So if anything happens, like, it gets around town quickly. We had to have, like, a town hall meeting about it. Um, they had to, like, address it on campus and come up with action steps on what they were going to do in order to like resolve it. And then we had to like mediate the whole situation out. So these, this is just an example of some of the things that like I had to experience on campus, being at a predominantly white institution, being around white folks for the very first time, really. um, And seeing firsthand, like what, what racism looks like up close. Okay. Right. Because you hear these things, and you're like white supremacy exists. Right. There mm-hmm. are systems in place that oppress black people. But I had never been right been around white folks. I never had to deal with like microaggressions from white people. Mm-hmm. I never had to deal with like being told I couldn't come into a party because I was black or I wasn't a part of they would say because I wasn't a part of like a sorority um, or fraternity. But, you know, because that's what they say to the guys, too. But it would be like, you know, essentially no black people were pledging. We didn't have a Greek life for, of our own. Okay. All we had was our own, like, social circles. So when we would try, try to, like, venture off and go to other people's things, they'd be like, mm, you know, you're not allowed here. So this was my first time really seeing it up close okay. and experiencing it. Um, and it really just created this fire in me to just keep doing the work that I was doing. I was a leader when I was in high school mm-hmm. and organizing around like Darfur and talking to my classmates about um, different issues that impacted us because I was a part of like a um, determined teens uh, take a stand. Mm-hmm. And it was like a group. It was a collective of youth who would like go out and talk to youth about the issues that impacted them. Yeah. yeah. And then that's how I got into the college campus and I had to do that on, on Lafayette's um, campus. So when I graduated, you know, I just knew that organizing um, was is for me, you know, and I just happened to fall into the skill of fundraising. And then I just merged the two together. <laughs> So, but I guess basically before you even knew 
what you'd be doing years later, that experience at Lafayette prepared you for that, you know? Yeah, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely did. Um, I, I mean, it really woke, that, that experience really woke me up. It really did. And Gozi, sit down. Okay, I need you to stay still until I'm finished, okay? I'm going somewhere. You're not going anywhere. You just need to relax. I'm, 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 I'm watching sweets. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> Kids are hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> She's a busybody, for sure. <laughs> so when you finished school, well, before you even finished school, you knew that you were going to come back home? Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I definitely knew I was coming back to D.C. Um, I didn't want to live anywhere else. Okay. And I still don't really. Like, I don't mind, like, traveling to other places, but, like, D.C. is my home. It's very familiar to me. I love the city. Um, even though it's not the same as it was when I uh, left okay. to go to school. It was funny. Every time I would come back to break, there would be, like, a whole new strip or something yeah. that I never saw before. I can, yeah, trust me. I, I'm already hip. So. Yes, five seconds. You leave for five seconds, you come back. And it's like, wait, what? Y'all done built up a whole new neighborhood? And so, so you, what year did you graduate? Uh, From college, 2010. 2010? Okay. Mm-hmm. So you get back to D.C., two years into the first Obama term. Um, what was the first plan of action upon hitting hitting the ground? In D.C.? Yeah. Well, I think it was really hard for me because when I came back, I didn't really, I wasn't employed. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I worked, what, like a few months and ended up like just like leaving that job. And I didn't have like stable. Yes. Okay, we're almost done. Okay. <laughs> um, I didn't really have. I didn't have employment. I didn't know which direction I wanted to go in. I think a lot of people think that they know exactly what they want to do when they graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, funny thing is, I was like watching television, um, and there was a one DC was doing a um. A tent city. Okay. So they the property okay. over there across the street from the library, they were trying to make that into like affordable housing, either affordable housing complex or trying to add a significant amount of affordable housing units in it. Okay. And um, the person who got the tra- contract had reneged on that. So they were s- tenting out on this lot of land, like, you know, s- camping out on this lot of land mm-hmm. in order to protest. Okay. And I saw it and went to go there and ended up meeting a lot of, like, local community organizers in the city mm-hmm. um, and was there for, like, a few Mommy. months. Mommy. Uh, I'm really tired. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> Can you wait, Gozi? Keep drawing and then I'm almost done, okay? Okay, I said I went. Okay, we're about to go to Gma's house. <laughs> Magic word, Gma. <laughs> Looks like it. <laughs> All right, go ahead, continue. Um, yes. I, um, what was I saying? I said you were talking about the tent city. Yeah, yeah. So I ended up at the tent city. So that was like my first time, like doing organizing work outside of working outside of like. After graduating college. Okay. 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 And so then from there, what was what was your next move? Oh, where did I go after that? Um, I did some, I was just hopping around from like job to job to job. Like it was just whatever I could do to like really sustain myself. Sustain myself. <laughs> and I ended up. At Occupy, okay, through DC Choice. So I was a part of like, and Gozi, I need you to calm down, okay? Yes, I want you to draw because mommy's. You see me talking? So we're gonna we're gonna ask you a question soon, okay? And then you get to answer it. But when I'm talking, you can't talk. Thank you. Okay. Occupied DC. Yeah. Okay. So I um I was sitting, I was in my room and I was watching um Democracy Now mm-hmm. and they were talking about Troy Davis. Okay. And I just remember feeling like 
I think his lawyer, Ben Jealous, and a few other people were on there just talking about the mounting of evidence that proved his innocence. I got it. I got And I really felt like, you know, I should be doing something to focus on the criminal, like, justice system. Mm. And I remember, like, a few, like, maybe a couple hours after watching that, there were a group of power students that were marching to the White House to protest um, the execution of Troy Davis. Mm -hmm. And I remember I just jumped up, ran out the house, um, down the street, ran into these random girls that I didn't know, and told them about his case. And basically it was like, like, we have to do something about it. Okay. And they came down to the White House with me. It was their first. They didn't know me from nothing. Yeah. And they came down with me because they believed, like, you know, no man should be ex- executed if he's innocent. Okay. Um. So they were, people were, we were out there protesting all day, protested, uh, walked, marched from the White House to the Supreme Court. And, like, after hours of just being out there, I really truly believed that, you know, something positive would come out of it. And by the time I got home... They, um, the, the, the Supreme Court rejected the stay and Troy Davis was executed. Mm-hmm. So that was like the first hard reality that like protesting and stuff, although it can work, like there's a lot of like ongoing work that needs to be done in order to like get rid of the de- death penalty um, and do work around the criminal justice system. Okay. So a group of folks who were out there protesting decided to start a collective called DC Troy Davis. Okay. And we would host, um, like know your rights workshops the 22nd of each month because Troy Davis was uh, executed September 22nd or 21st. Mm-hmm. Um, so every month on the day he was executed, we would do some sort of workshop. Okay. And that's how I ended up around that time. Occupy kicked off. Yeah. So then I ended up at Occupy just talking about DC Troy Davis, the criminal justice system, uh, building with local organizers and attorneys, lawyers who were doing work around that. And, um, we started like another committee and Gozi. I'm talking. You have to relax, okay? So um yeah, like we I ended up there. A bunch of us were organizing around Wells Fargo and the death penalty. And it was just, like, a great opportunity to meet local organizers that were doing work Mm -hmm. um, around different issues. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people that I know who are doing community organizing right now, I met them through the work I was doing either at Occupy or D.C. Troy Davis. Okay. (laughs) All right. Um... Okay, Troy Davis, Occupy DC. Um, so overall, I want to ask you why. Since you've been talking, about, especially with the criminal justice system, was there ever a point that you ever thought that you wanted to do like law school or anything like that? I when I grew up, when I was growing up, I did want to be like a lawyer. Okay, but um, I realized that it's just I that's not like the field that I necessarily want to go in. Okay, um, I do like fundraising. I like being out in the community. I like connecting with people. Um, I know a lot of attorneys, so I feel like. I'm more so see myself as a connector, like a person who builds relationship with people, with people who have different professions. Mm-hmm. And then I just make sure that, you know, we're all interconnected in some, in some way. Okay. You have to take, take that off your mouth. Take it off and put it on the right way. I always give you a kick on me. You have to stay in your seat. I'm almost done, okay? So sit down and draw. Oh, that's a long way to go home. No, nah, we're almost done. <laughs> Trust me, we're almost done. <laughs> All right, so um, the reason why I ask, like I said, because, like, you you know your stuff. You know your stuff. And, I mean, just overall, like, um, I think anybody who goes into hardcore day-to-day community service work, um, just like social justice work like you got to know the law you know Mm -hmm. but and a lot of people they a lot of us a lot of black people you know they go into the legal field but how many of us are like i guess working in the in the in the areas of law where that would be most beneficial for us as Mm -hmm. a community 
you know? So yeah. that's why I ask, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's true. I think that there are a lot of people, I know a lot of, like, black um, attorneys, and some of them have to pay off student loans, so mm-hmm. I don't blame them for taking uh, a job at a firm, you yeah. know, to pay off those loans. Right, right, Cause right. Because they don't have, a lot of them don't have the flexibility to just, like, take a community organizer position or work at a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something that's economical. Mm-hmm. But if you have, like, um, parents and a, a, a larger network of people that can support you, then you have more, like, you can do stuff like that. You can make those type of sacrifices. Okay. But oftentimes, black people can't do that. But now, you're right. A lot of people, I mean, they got to pay the loan. So, you know, I'm not I'm not mad at what they choose as far as the um the area of law they go into. But it would just be good if if more people, um like I said, went into, went into, um, even if it's like criminal justice, you know what I mean? Because like there's, we know the numbers, you know, in terms of just how disproportionate they are as as if as far as like blacks and Latinos go, you know what I mean? So you know, I don't know, just my thoughts, just my thoughts, you know? What yeah, I mean? I, I mean the only people that's gonna help us are us, and we have a um a law for Black Lives group that's was created in D.C. Mm-hmm. So it's not exclusively black people, but it's people who are who are lawyers attorneys who want to help people who are going through black folks who are like just being hit by the system Mm -hmm. at different angles Mm -hmm. so i think as long as we're building a group of folks who are actively doing work around that um you know we we might be okay we just to make sure that we're pulling our resources together okay so you once worked with empower dc as well as Black Lives Matter DC. Uh-huh. Now your focus is Melanin Uprising. Tell 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 the listeners about Melanin Uprising. Okay, so Melanin Uprising is a youth collective between um, comprised of about six youth between the ages of sixteen and twenty two. So last October, well October twenty fifteen, um, a group of young people and myself came together and decided that we wanted to create a space. For young people to talk about um, the Black Lives Matter movement, Mm -hmm. um, issues that were impacting them, systemic oppression, and what they could do in order to combat it. Okay. So we go out into middle schools and high schools across the city, mostly in Ward 7 and Ward Mm 8, and talk to um, young people about Mm -hmm. self-esteem, racial justice, or whatever issue it is that they want to talk about, um, cultural appropriation, Recently, our most recent event was around um, consent. So a lot of our youth youth felt like um, they wanted to talk about just sexual violence Mm -hmm. that were happening in schools, um, how uh, people felt... just people felt like there was an escalation of like sexual violence that they were experiencing. Interesting, interesting. So they wanted to like hold space. Okay for to have this hard conversation right, right, right. and it was really it was really powerful but these kids they create their own lesson plans mm-hmm. um they implement them they do workshops so not only do they go out and talk to uh black and brown youth but they've also held uh workshops around with white folks on racial justice yeah. um and talked about the pillars of white supremacy in our communities so they they're doing awesome work some of the um they've really stepped out there and taken the lead and shown everybody that youth do can control um, the narrative. They control, they can control their own narrative and they don't need um, other people to dictate their own trajectory. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just leverage my resources as their mentor. So if they need something I try to create space and find the per- the people who can help them. Okay. So Algebra, who is somebody that you interviewed um, them at the Madison House, he opened his home to us, and they were able to do an open mic night, uh, and they packed the house. Yeah. You know, it was almost a hundred youth there. How they like that going, night. how they like the Madison House? They loved it, and they go, they hang out there without you know without me. They they drop by there, so. To me, I want to introduce them to spaces that exist in the city that that are here for them as a resource. It's a healing house. You mm-hmm. know, our youth are dealing with so much in our community. Um, you know, we have youth in our program who don't have stable housing, who are uh, struggling to get scholarships to stay in school, who uh, can't find um, uh, jobs that 
pay, you know, uh, a living wage. Mm -hmm. So there are all these things that are hitting them from different angles and they just need a space to really just be themselves, to talk about it and to get the, um, and to feel empowered to do something about it. Okay. So that's exact. That's in, in essentially what we're doing. Right. This month we're going to be doing a self-defense, a youth self-defense class or well, a defense class for youth. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever it is that they want to do and whatever it is that they hear the, co- the youth in the community saying they want, they try to create opportunities to do it. We've had, we've done communities. We do quarterly community service projects. So, you know, there's nothing that we, un- you know, there's nothing that we're not doing okay. essentially, you know, and so many people are coming and, and trying to support us. Um, and I'm so grateful for everybody who just stepped up and tried to um, support them in the best way they could. Okay. And go to give them a foot in the table. Okay. Put your socks on. Put your socks on and put your shoes on. We're about to leave. Come on. Yes, we're about to leave. It's almost your turn. We'll let you know in just a second. It's almost your turn. <laughs> So, yeah, I pretty much like I've been, you know, I've been doing a lot um, and and all these experiences and all these relationships that I've built and all these different collectives that I've been a part of have really helped me become the person that I am today. And the youth, that age, that's like the best time to get someone interested, I think, in in just like service. You know what I mean? Because um. As with anything, the older you get, the harder it is to get people to change their minds or like wrap their minds, wrap their minds around anything outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So when I first learned um, about Melanin Uprising, I was just like, oh, it's a youth movement here. Um, I always say, like, the youth are going to be what are going to be who really pushes the envelope in terms of just um seeing some real, real change in the streets in D.C., mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, because, like, they're the generation that's behind us, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and they're, they're, what is it? Um, I guess, like, their level of just, like, fear and just, like, their naivety in terms of just, like, life experiences doesn't prevent them from, I guess one from like stopping like, okay, well I can't do that. Cause you know, this might happen. Like, uh, you know, like they don't have that fear, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or just those apprehensions that you, 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 you gain as you get older, once you've gone through things, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it's dope. Yeah. I'm, I mean, and they, they're a lot of them have a lot of the experience have a lot of them have already struggled. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that based on, um, a lot. I think we have a misconception that somehow youth don't understand the world around them, mm-hmm. right? And what it takes in order to survive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them, and a lot of them have already gone through so many things in their life that that have prepared them mm-hmm. for this. I know my youth have. Okay. Um, and they're just using what it is, the skills that they already have, and they're finding it within themselves. And I think that's largely in part what we do as adults, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we learn more about ourselves as we get older and based on our different level of, like, struggle. Mm-hmm. And I've, I see adults who just haven't gone through much, yeah. right? Yeah. Very naive. And I've seen young people who are just, who act like they're 40 years old because they've been through so many things because of adversity. Right, right. Um. So to me, it's about showing the world that youth can step up. They do step up. They do lead. And they've been and they've been doing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you just think about, um, you know, who was during the civil rights era, you know, uh, SNCC, those were young children. Mm -hmm. I have in our um, in the building that I live in uh, this um, former Black Panther or Black Panther. His name is Valentine. I mean, he started, he tells me he started when he was 19 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, these are young people have been largely at the forefront of movements in general. And I want them to see those examples in the past and see who's doing the work right yeah. now. Right. And just, you know, do it. Okay. All right. That's my turn. All right. What would you like to say, Ngozi?
Come on, you gotta get closer. Okay, Wait, be let me, gentle. Let me let me help you out. Let me help you out. All right. That way. This way, and then you're gonna talk into the mic. What would you like to say? Okay. Hey, okay. What's your name? You got to focus, or we're gonna turn the mic off. Okay, so what's your name? Okay, and my name is. No, 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 no. don't hold don't that. Don't hold that. Don't Go ahead and talk. Just say it. Don't touch the mic. Just talk. No, talk right here. Just stand right here and talk. Right on this side and talk. Here? Yeah, yes. no, but don't touch it. Just talk. Okay. What's your name? Ngozi Baskami Woha. And what school do you go to? Kaumba. Do you know what Kaumba means? You want to see. Um, and what, um, what's your sibling's name? Kushi. What's your brother and sister name? A free A, and what's your brother's name? Uh, okay, and how old are you? Three. You're three years old? Yes. Okay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for sharing with us, and goes. We appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this is what I mean, this is what my life is is about working, um, doing stuff for the youth, and being a mother. Yeah. And oftentimes, like, I often talk about, like, just being in community organizing spaces and being very aware of, like, their parents who are doing this work, very invested. And oftentimes, like, we get asked to do so much, right, without, like, real support, a real support system. Yeah. So I oftentimes, like, when I go to community spaces or I do things, you know, I bring in Gozi with me. Um because she has to be there. We got to have our babies on our hips. Right, and they right. have to see everything that we're doing so that they're influenced by it. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> Trust me, I'm not mad at it. I'm going to ask you a question. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything we're talking about tonight. Okay. So, you're a Backyard fan, right? Yeah, I like Backyard. Okay. I just, you know what? You know, her dad uh, actually took me to my first go-go. So, I didn't go to my first go-go until I was like 22 years really? old. Yeah. Like, I wasn't really, like, I was a very, I was the first baby, so I was very, very sheltered. I okay. mean, if you think about D.C., like, back in, like, the early 90s. So, your first Backyard show was at 22. Where'd you, where, what was no, the? No, who did I see? I saw another band. Oh, okay, okay. I saw another band. But I've been to back, plenty of backyard, backyard uh, shows since then. Um, the reason why I ask is because I, I like to know. I ask a lot of people this question: What's your favorite dope jam? What year? Um, let's see. Like favorite backyard song? N like because you know they got the dope jam, so every year they come out with a dope jam, right? Yeah. So for me, it's a toss up between ninety three. And 95. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like I just, I gravitate towards like favorite, I have like favorite songs, like favorite go-go songs mm -hmm. that bring up like memories of like junior high school and like high school. Okay. So like Sexy Lady is definitely one of them. Okay. UCB, yeah. Yeah. And then like, um, what's another one? <laughs> you can turn it off. Okay. All right. So we're good. <laughs> no, you don't want any more water? Okay. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, sexy lady. That's a that. I remember when I was audio engineering school in New York, and I played that for my class. <laughs> they thought that I was Trey singing on the record oh my god it's like is that you i'm like nah man <laughs> that ain't me man so many people hate like so many people hate go-go but i just have these moments like in my life like i feel like go-go was like the thing to go to like i used to really want to go to go-go's and all this other stuff and my mom would be like yeah no that's not happening so i kind of feel like 
you know, once I got older, I got to like experience something about this, like experience the city in a way that I've never experienced before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like go-go is definitely important. And like these kids today, they don't even listen to go-go anymore. They just want to rap now. Yeah. I mean, they don't, I mean, or it's like this EDM or whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, folks, are, they don't listen. Like go-go is not like what's hot, yeah. you know? So that makes me very sad because I feel like it's very much a part of like DC culture um and like who we are mm-hmm. so the fact that we're losing it really just makes me semi sad yeah i mean I, I i know a guy he says his daughter who's a teenager now doesn't like go-go yeah and but he's like because she's never been to one whereas like you know when i was a teen when he was a teen when a bunch of people i know were teens like we were in there like right. regularly like it was nothing you know it's like a thing to go to and my <laughs> middle sister like i don't know why my parents were so strict with me but like my middle sister she would always she was always you were the go- first you were the yeah first. i was the first one <laughs> so why. it was like they were just like not even mess like they were just like no but with my sister she begged and she made sure that she got to go and i think my mom just like loosened up and she was like yeah whatever just like go ahead well, she had to make sure that the first one she got it she got it right the first time. Then yeah. she was like, "Okay, she's okay." So I think I can loosen up now with right, this with this second right. one. You know what I mean? So I was like, she definitely sheltered me like to the max umpteenth degree. But you know, I love I do I love go go, mm-hmm. and um, I definitely like am more intentional about like going and buying CDs and like making sure that my daughter like listens to it simply yeah. because. People like a lot of young people just really aren't into it anymore. Yeah, yeah, it is unfortunate. Um, well, this leads me to my next question. Um, you live east of the river, east of the Anacostia River, Ward, yeah. ward Seven. Yeah, you spent a lot of time in Ward Eight. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about just because I know this was this was like a hot topic. Um, when it was happening, and it still is a hot tap hot topic even after the swearing in, but just like the political transition. Um, in both Ward 7 and 8. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you have Vince Gray come back into the fold for Ward 7, as Ward 7 Council. Mm-hmm. And you have, um, which was unexpected by quite a few, but, you know, fought for diligently um, when that is um, Treon White um, now being uh, Ward 8 Councilman and um, after his loss last, last term mm-hmm. uh, to LaRuby May. Mm-hmm. Um, what, even the first time he only lost by 30 votes right right and so it's just like such a small margin that first time so I mean I'm pretty sure that was just enough I'm like okay I gotta do this again you know right. what I mean cause like you know the people clearly want me but this is just like we can make this happen you know what I mean but just seeing that those two um, those two get, get into office um, get into those positions um, one coming from you know just like all the uh, the 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 media, um, the media stuff about just like you know um, all the investigations with, uh, around Vince Gray and his administration when he was mayor, mm-hmm. um, to just like you know, Trayon White as far as being inside of the, being a part of the council, the new guy. What do you think with them in position, um, the future holds for Ward Seven and Eight? Um, well, I'm I'm more excited about. You know, Treyon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, um, what did I, I think, I first, like, heard about him when I started working at Empire DC. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were just talking about, like, all the things that he's been doing in the community. And he always shows up. Like, if you ever ask him to do something, like, he's there. He's mm-hmm. always in the community. And that's what I, that's what I like to see. Um, one of this woman that I'm um, close to who lives in a berry farm and is a part of the berry farm tenant association she talked about just like her water getting cut off and how she called Treyon's office and um people within her office made sure that they sent her water mm-hmm. for the day until her water got cut back on mm-hmm. like that's the type of leadership we need yeah and he always shows up he's always there um he was just doing an interview and someone asked him about the 100 million dollars that uh Mayor Bowser put in towards affordable housing and he said we need more mm-hmm. and that's the, like that he really shows up and speaks on behalf of the community and it's up to us to really make sure that we hold him accountable yeah so yeah I'm excited about both well I'm excited about uh Treyon White mm-hmm. I'm excited about Robert White he's he's new on the council yeah um Vincent Gray has done this before um and there were some things that he's done that I'm you know I don't necessarily uh support 
but um, it's the people that really like make sure that the city runs Mm -hmm. um, and they represent us. So as long as we are holding them accountable, I think that we're going to see some great things come out of both wards because we are setting the tone for what we want it to look like. I mean, both of those wards hold the largest number of native Washingtonians as residents still, Mm -hmm. um, as well as um, I'm not totally up to... um, just up to up 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 to breast with uh with um what's happening in Ward Seven, like in terms of like economic development, so mm-hmm. to speak. But definitely with Ward Eight, you know, I'm very very aware of what's coming over there, and I just sometimes just in conversation with people, I just wanna I just ask them like, you know, let me backtrack. So I was having a conversation yesterday. Um, I actually posted this um on social media today. You know. Mm-hmm. I was po- I posted this on social media today because I had a conversation about it yesterday, which was, you know, um, if you pay taxes in the city mm-hmm. in which you live, everything is for you. A lot of people say like, oh, this isn't for us. They're building this because it's not for us, you know. And um, I get what they're saying when they say that. You mm-hmm. know, they're basically saying um, they are building this because there is a, lar- a, a major influx of, of, of revenue and money coming in. You know, there's a lot of white people living in the city now who weren't here before. So now we got to fix the place up and put all this, uh, all these new shiny things and up and around. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm like, I hear you. I get that. And that's definitely a large part of it. But because you are a taxpaying citizen, a taxpaying resident, you know, you are just as entitled to what they are getting ready to put um, in your neighborhood, in your backyard as the next person. And. I just I still sense some apprehension, you know, even when I speak to people who are, you know, of means who have like, you know, traveled and done a whole bunch of things. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, well, what are you so apprehensive about? Like you go uptown to go to some of these things. You know what I mean? Like, you know, mm-hmm. even with um, Bus Boys and Poets coming to um, Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. You know what I mean? Like I for me, I said, like, man, that's amazing. Like. Well, they's getting like a full service restaurant, you know, and like I have my reservations about bus boys and poets because I'm a former employee and, you know, I used to work at the 14th Street location. But, you know, even still in the grand scheme of things, like it's a full service restaurant, you know, what I mean, it's not and it's not ser- serving, you know, food that will keep you on your your your, your pressure pills and your Lipitor cholesterol medication. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, and they just open turning natural, nice strip. Absolutely, like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All of those things, you know. And so I, I just, I know it's going to take time. I just wish that, you know, I just wish that the apprehension wasn't so intense, you know, mm-hmm. to um, development. Yeah, I think the reason why it is is because people have had everything snatched from them. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you like literally everybody that a lot of people that I've known in the city are either can't find housing, uh, living with me or mm-hmm. <laughs> living with, you know, their parents. Yeah, yeah. And like you said, it's all this new development. But when you walk into a building and they're asking you for two thousand dollars for a studio. Yeah. Then it's not really. The, that's their, that's that's them slapping you in the face with saying, actually, this isn't really for you. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. And that's why I think people are just so upset and so angry because for years we've been told as the black community we're going to get jobs, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like everybody's uh, po- political platform, jobs, um, housing, justice in whichever form it, it takes mm-hmm. um, for that era. So I think that's why people are so apprehensive is that a lot of the times that when we do get something in Ward 7 or Ward 8, that it's either not by us mm-hmm. um, or it's not for us in terms of, like, affordability. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the apprehension is. So with, like, things, and there's this huge debate, you know, around Bus Boys and Poets and how they treat their workers, um, whether that's the first sign of gentrification or not. And a lot of people do feel that way, right? We only got an hour, so I, I can't, I can't <laughs> even get into what I would say to answer that question. But, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I feel you there. I love seeing things, but I love seeing things like turning natural, yeah. black owned, mm-hmm. right? Healthy mm-hmm. for the community. 
that's that's something that we want to see in a, yeah. in the, um on along that strip the Anacostia Art Center mm-hmm. another place that has like black people owning their own business and hosting events for yes. the community mm-hmm. that's what I want to see mm-hmm. I want it to be by us and for us yes. right and even in forms of cooperatives where we're collectively owning something mm-hmm. I think that we need to really transform the way we think about what we want our communities to look like. And what it is to just get to be thankful for, like, the scraps that we're giving, right? Like, I just, like, I'm not going to celebrate, you know, um, uh, a buzz boy's coming. I can't celebrate that. Mm-hmm. You know, it means I I want more than yeah. that. Yeah. So I can understand. You want that to be one of the things, not necessarily the premier. Yeah. And yeah. I, I even feel like that whole thing could have been something else. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it could have been somebody, a, a a restaurant, you know, cooperative or something like that where the owners are collectively owning the business. Like, that exists. Yeah. And so, it, I, I remember there's talks, I don't know if they're still in talks or if this is actually going to be a thing, but I remember there were talks about a, a grocery co-op, a co-op coming Yeah, yeah, and a grocery there. co-op. Like, those are the things that I want to see. Like, mm-hmm. I'm far past this, like, oh, you know, Andy Shalau or whatever is, like, invested in the community, so... You know, we're going to be happy that he's bringing his restaurant to Ward 8 and it's going to bring us all this business. And that's what people are fixated on is about jobs. But are they quality jobs? Are they affordable? Like, uh, can you live off of the the salary that you're getting there? Right. Um, is it is it fair? We don't think about these things when we're um, talking about like development. So I think a lot of people are just weary. Yeah. They don't want things to be they don't want Ward 8 to look like Shaw. Mm-hmm. You know, because I grew up in this neighborhood, it always looked like this, and it was snatched away from me. It's yeah. not affordable for me, and I grew up in this neighborhood. Hey, I, I was at Howard <laughs> in, in 2000. I remember when, with how you remember what this was, used to look like, yeah. And like, yeah. I would love to to live on the same block as my mother. Mm-hmm. I would love that. I would love to buy a home on the same block as my mom with my own space, but still be close to my family. Mm-hmm. And I cannot do that, yeah. Like, they've shut me out. Mm-hmm. Ward 7 and Ward 8 are essentially one of the only places that a lot of us black and brown people can afford. Yeah. So when they talk about bringing wards, the development to Ward 7 and 8, we think, oh, this shit about to look like Shaw. Mm-hmm. Right? And we don't want that. Yeah. Like, white folks are already setting up shop in Anacostia. Like, it's nothing. Like, opening up, business, opening up businesses, doing all kinds of stuff. So, like, I mean, it's one thing, and I'm not just trying to say that, like, you know, white folks can't be supportive of black and brown communities, but, like, we need to be able to make sure that the people who are doing stuff for us are doing it for us and we're reaping the benefits from it mm-hmm. um, and holding these folks accountable. Because literally anything could just be just thrown up and you could push a whole community out like it's nothing. And they're constantly trying to do that in Word 7, both Word 7 and 8. Mm-hmm. A lot of projects are trying to bury farm. People will fight for that, like, are fighting for that land, you know? It used to be black land. It used to be owned by us. Yeah. Like, we lost that. Mm-hmm. And now they want to throw mixed income, use development, capers. Capers is gone. Capers 501 is gone. Is gone. 501, look at what it, look at what, look at what it yeah. looks like now. That's Southwest. Yes, yes. Right? Waterfront. Yes. Look at Waterfront right now. I, I, when I, I, I'm a Lyft driver, so, like, I take people when we're riding by and, like, you know, we're just, I'm just, if they're not familiar or they haven't been here very long, you know, you know, I just end up in these, like, impromptu history lessons like they'll bring up something i was like well this actually used to be and right across from this and i tell him like yeah this used to be you know a house project called arthur caper dwellings you yeah. know and um they're like really i'm like yeah like right here a project. <laughs> yeah and you know what's so right funny across about from it? Harris a Teeter. lot of the people who <laughs> lived in that neighborhood wanted to come back yeah they were told that they were going to be able to come back mm-hmm. and then they realized that they had to have a certain critical score they couldn't have all their family members on the lease, mm-hmm. right? They had to have um, a certain level of income. Mm-hmm. And there were all these hoops that they had to jump to just to get back in. I mean, I have, um, there's one woman that I know who, who it took 10 years for her to get back in there. 10 whole years. Wow. Like, and they told her that she couldn't have her daughter on the lease. Wow. So you're literally splitting families apart, throwing them out, like throwing them away. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us are moving to like PG County and other areas in the surrounding areas that are less affordable. Um, or more affordable. But less accessible. But less accessible, right? And then you have the transportation issue. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I understand why people are so apprehensive and, like, and like feel it deeply. You know, mm-hmm. it's a strong apprehension because they want to make sure that the city is doing it right. Because right. they can tell you they are and you realize on the back end of it that you're not going to be able to get back into your the place that you grew up in. 
So I think it's good that they're getting a lot of like pushback and apprehension because it makes people make sure that they're coming correctly. Okay. Okay. Um. So I'm okay. I'm okay with it. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> um. So this takes me to my final question with the 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 black and brown residents of of DC, um, native or not, mm-hmm. um. In the current local and national political climate, um. What should we be on the lookout for? What should we be prepared for? Um, mm-hmm. How should we prepare for what um, more than likely we have speculated <laughs> to come? You know what I mean? Because um, um, things have changed quite a bit. Um, I mean, living in the backyard of like the federal government, mm-hmm. as well as, um, you know, like I said, like we just went through um, a couple ba- major changes um, within D.C. local government. You know what I mean? So, like, what should... What do you, What would you say is in store? What should, what, how should people prepare for what's in store? Um, I think that we just got to hold our communities close, um, hold our family close, start strategizing about what it is that we want um, it to look like in Washington, D.C. I'm all about local politics because I feel like that's how you, like, make the most get the most out of your like effort same really here, same here. um like i think sometimes national politics is just too big mm-hmm. and oftentimes people lose sight and hope and they just fall off but with local politics you can start seeing your efforts like start to benefit you mm-hmm. um so i think locally and i think we have to keep pushing bowser around affordable housing mm-hmm. we need more affordable housing um she recently um expanded hpap so that if you make under thirty um, percent of the AMI, mm-hmm. I believe, then you don't have to pay back the loan um, okay. that they give you unless you sell your house. Um, she increased the amount they give you to from fifty thousand to eighty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, which is also really good. But we need much more than that, right? Mm-hmm. You can still get kicked out of affordable housing complex, right? Right. Right. Um, there are no real stipulations; they're privately owned. Mm-hmm. So we need real affordable housing, not one person paying a thousand dollars that they can't afford for mm. one bedroom, but something even cheaper than that. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want the bare minimum because affordable housing, literally you can make eighty thousand dollars and then move into an affordable housing complex. There's no real stipulation around it. If you make eighty percent of the AMI, you can still apply for affordable housing and a lot of these Yeah, uh, com- I, I was reading that and I'm just like, Man, that's wow. Is like- that exactly they don't define really what affordable you think you when they say affordable housing, you really think that they're talking about uh, somebody who's making like seventeen to twenty thousand, when in actuality you're talking about somebody who's making like sixty and seventy thousand dollars. Who they want? They want that to be the new poor in Washington D.C. People making fifty and sixty thousand dollars, which is 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 mind boggling. Cause like you know, once upon a time, like I mean, shit, like there's even people to the in this to this day, even though like it's not a lot of money, but it's still like more than what a lot of people are making. They would love to make that much money. And so now just for you saying like they want that to be the new poor, it's just like, man, that is wow. It is. <laughs> it is. I mean, if you look at look at some good I mean, I, I encourage people to go look at some of these uh um minimum incomes that you have to make in order to get into some of these affordable housing complex. Okay. You have to make quite a bit of money. Um, and the fifty percent of Americans are making under thirty thousand dollars a year. Yeah, right. And DC so insulated. Like a, a lot of people in DC don't even realize that. Like you know, outside of the Beltway, it's very very different. Yeah. You know, financially and economically. You know what I mean? It's more. It's much more <laughs> affordable. Man, you know how much land I can get in a, uh on in Atlanta? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or some of these other places, mm-hmm. like. It's much more affordable than it is in Washington, D.C. During the recession, I think D.C. was the only place where the housing prices increased. I, I, dated, <laughs> I, I dated a woman who lived in Philly. She um, had she was renting out a three-bedroom uh, row home that up there in South Philly. Um, renovated, um, steel appliances, I mean, aluminum appliances, all of that, um, New floors, um, granite countertops, whole nine yards, backyard too. Even enough room for her dog in the backyard. She pays seven hundred dollars a month for that for wow. that for rent. Wow! I was like, what? Can't even imagine anything like that. <laughs> you was like, she's like, yeah, I pay seven hundred dollars a month, and and I was like, like that's even cheap for the hood because like it was still like in the hood, and I'm just like, yo, like 
I don't even know what seven hundred dollars a month will get you in the hood market rate in DC. Yeah, you can't get nothing yeah. for seven hundred. You get a you get half a room. That's what exactly. you get for seven hundred dollars. Yeah, so get half a room. <laughs> so yeah, that if that. Yeah, so I was just like, man, what? <laughs> I'm about to move back to Philly. <laughs> yes, no, Philly is that's Philly is where it's at for real. That's why we need to, and that's what I'm saying. Like we gotta. Because they are just selling this place left and right. Mm-hmm. Every piece of property land that they can sell, the mayor is doing it. Mm-hmm. So we have to be on top of them because they're passing legislation from left to right. Mayor Bowser just um, where it was just um, pushing for speeding tickets to be increased to $1,000. $1,000. You Okay. Okay, um, that's for di- who's paying a thousand dollars? I guess they weren't playing when they say there's a war on cars. Right? Like, no, a hundred nine, a hundred and ninety nine million dollars the city made off of just tickets alone, and they depend on that money for their budget. I remember when uh, uh um, what's his name, Adrian Fenty came on News Channel Four, and they were talking about you know how are you gonna you know. Close the, the 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 budget gap. Oh, we're just gonna write more tickets. We're just gonna you know just write more tickets. Write more tickets. Yeah, no. I'm like, damn, you really came out your face and said that, man. <laughs> yeah, but they don't understand that the burden that it puts on the people, and nobody's really campaigning around it, so they get to do it. Um, but there's been talks about a group kind of coming together to push the council mm-hmm. to really just like do some sort of like ticket reform, speed of ticket reform, because this is ridiculous, and they're really dependent on us to foot the bill for a lot of things. Um, so we really need to figure out like what it is that we're going to do. And like, I also want to talk about like us being a sanctuary city for, um, undocumented immigrants. Yes. Yes. You know, um, we need to make sure that we are funding resources to attorneys to help undocumented immigrants locally. So if we say we're a sanctuary city, we need to be doing everything necessary in order to make sure that we are a sanctuary city, but like we have to, I think as a, community we really need to learn how to come together Mm -hmm. how to be supportive of each other and say you know not on my watch so if you are if you are friends with an undocumented immigrant what is it that you're willing to do and who is it that you're willing to get in a room in order to make sure that that person stays here Mm -hmm. and that's the kind of like organizing that we need we don't need like pointless direct actions we need really organized strategic support systems for people who are truly at risk Okay. All right. I mean, I like it. I like all of it. I'm with it. I'm with the shit. Man, yes. I'm with the shit. So, in closing, what's your plan for inauguration weekend? Oh, I'm in Cuba, baby. Oh, okay. You're <laughs> out of here. I'm out. I'm gone. No protesting, <laughs> no nothing, no women's march. I'm not for that shit. Like, no. Like, I'm not. It's, I mean, white women should have just voted for. <laughs> <laughs> like, March after the fact. How the people there voted for Trump? <laughs> <laughs> like I can't. I'm not doing it. Like it's not. It's... Okay, go go get your shoes. Go get your shoes. Um. Yeah. Like I'm. I'm in Cuba. I'm gone. Right. Like I'm getting. I'm recentering myself and kind of figuring out what I'm gonna do with what the youth group and I will be doing together, collaborating to make sure that we're holding each other down. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. like that's what I'm focusing on is making sure that the people that are in my circle and my network are being held down and that we are not like driving ourselves in the ground. We're taking care of ourselves and doing the work that's necessary um, to be there for each other. It's right there. Here you go. Well, I'm glad you're recentering. I, I I like when people who do a lot, who who work very hard and do great work, take time for themselves to to regroup so they don't burn out. So I'm glad, and I'm glad that you're getting out the country. I, I'm I, definitely I, getting out the country. I had to, like, I have to, I have to go. I need to. I haven't been out the country in like over ten years. Okay. okay. So it's been a while for me, and I kind of feel like 2017 is about like really focusing on myself, um, making sure that I'm traveling and exploring and seeing what resistance looks like um, in other countries too, mm-hmm. um, not just here in the states. And you know, I'm really excited to like see Cuba, to go to the museums and hear what the people 
um, have been doing in order to like fight for each other. And what is it? What is even? What does a communist country even look like? <laughs> I'm just ready to go. I'm not here. I'm not focused on no Trump or nothing that week. Like, we got four years to do this. And, like, honestly, we, a lot of us have been doing this work before Trump. Okay. You know, like, not to be a downer, but the um, Obama deported more people than any other president. So what does that mean? Like, is Trump going to just be his record? <laughs> uh, you br- like, you, you're bringing up stuff that a lot of people don't want to hear. Yeah. You definitely bring up I stuff. I mean, it's true, though. I mean, we have to be, we have to be real about the condition that we're in like eight years later later like what is it that we have yeah, yeah. as a community like are we better off Nah, you're absolutely right you're and absolutely a lot right. of people i mean some of the bougiest people i know will tell me in my face no <laughs> right <laughs> they say that they're disappointed yeah yeah nah. and these are people that are that are same. comfortable same here same here same here I agree. so if they feel that way imagine what it like the impact that this administration has had on like working class and poor people. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't know. I mean, I'm just ready to do the work. I'm not fixated on like I am. I mean, we have to be aware of what's happening nationally, but my focus, me in particular is local politics. Got it. You know, and what is it that I can get for the people in my community locally? And I encourage everybody nationally to do exactly the same thing. Cause it's your council members, um, you know, we don't have representation, I guess, but, you know, we have to like push for that, yeah. you know, yeah. so that we have our own voice locally. And that is one thing that Mayor Bowser has been like advocating for is for us to be a state and to have con- and to control our budget, okay. our own budget so that the council doesn't have to uh, approve things that we approve. Right. Right. OK. I'm on a local level. All right. Well, we can leave it right there. Chi Chi, where can people find you? Um, okay, so the group Melanin Uprising is facebook.com slash melanin uprising, M-E-L-A-N-I-N uprising. And um, our Twitter handle is at melanin uprising as well. Um, and, you know, you can always find me on Facebook, Chioma Iwoha, you know, come see what I'm talking about and what we're doing. But if you want to know what the local uh, youth group is doing, definitely like our page. Word. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. The All the Fly Kids show is produced and recorded at One Love Magic Studio, located across from the historic Howard Theater in Washington, D.C. Engineered by Mike, Mark, and Molly and produced by Geronimo Nose. You can subscribe and listen to this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or MixCloud. Pay it forward and let your people know we're here.